Before I begin on our lesson tonight, let me commend Carl on the song selection. Those, uh, I'm not sure there could have been better uh, words chosen for the topic that we've got tonight. Uh, he spent a little time looking for those, I can tell. Uh, one difference between me and Carl, I look through the words and some songs I see and I say, those words would be perfect for the sermon. And I say, yeah, but we don't know that one, so I go on. Carl says, that'd be perfect, let's just sing it. So, that's good. Uh, excellent words in some of those for what we're talking about. And if you're visiting with us or here for the first time this year, we're training with the Twelve on Sunday nights. We're going to experience some of the things that the... Uh, Twelve did as they traveled with Jesus for a couple of years and got trained on a number of different topics. We're spending the first few weeks meeting the Twelve. Uh, we'll be done with that next Sunday night, hopefully, and then we'll get into some topics that Jesus taught them about. Uh, one fun fact before we get started with our meeting the Twelve tonight, it's pretty likely, uh, I think probable, that seven of the twelve apostles were fishermen. And that's kind of an odd fact. Why would Jesus choose seven fishermen? Uh, I'm sure we've got some fishermen here that think they know the answer to that, but uh, it's just strange. Out of all the people he could have picked in the world, why uh, probably seven of them were, and I put some proof up there if you uh, want to call it proof. Uh, pretty sure about a number of them, but guessing on a few of them. In John 21, after the resurrection, you remember uh, the apostles went back to Galilee for a while, and they didn't know exactly what they were supposed to do until Jesus told them to go to Jerusalem. And so Peter said, I'm going fishing, and uh, went out in the boat. And uh, when he said he was going to go fishing, the others that were with him right then said, well, we'll go too. And John records who was there. It was Peter and Thomas and Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, who were James and John, and two others of his disciples. And we don't know who the two others were, but that group often appears together with Philip and Andrew. Uh, the way the apostles are listed and the way we read stories about them as we go through the gospel. So I'm guessing that it was Philip and Andrew uh, we know Philip were, was from the same town as Peter and Andrew. Uh, we know a few other things like that. So it's pretty likely, since they all went back to fishing, and this wasn't a pleasure fishing trip, they were, <laughs> they were trying to raise some money probably, um, probably seven of them were professional fishermen. And once again, the question is why? You know, Jesus could have picked anybody, and we talked... Uh, last time or the time before about why he didn't. But when we think about seven fishermen in particular, uh, it occurred to me that he could have picked the, the best, the scholarly, the all kinds of talented folks. And when he picked them, he could have claimed that these are my 12 helpers and they're the best and the brightest. They are absolutely the finest collection of uh, helpers that anybody could have in Palestine. But instead, he picked at least seven fishermen, and instead of saying these are the best and the brightest, 
perhaps he said, they will do. They're good enough. And that's the answer. You see, when Jesus picks somebody, all he really needs from them is that they are available. That they want to go with him. That's who he picked. Because everything else he takes care of. If you get the best and the brightest, sometimes they try to do it on their own power. If you get seven fishermen that know they don't know much except how to catch fish, they might rely on Jesus a little bit more. And Jesus was going to train them, and he would give them the gifts they needed. He would empower them. They were going to preach by his power, not by their power. And they were going to do miracles, not by their power, but by his power. So all he needed was men who were available, and that's who he picked, and they were good enough. Kind of encouraging, isn't it? All right, the middle group, let's talk about them. I told you we were going to start at the bottom and did the last four last time. We moved up to the middle group. Philip, Bartholomew, or Nathaniel, uh, Thomas, and Matthew. Four guys that we've heard a little bit more of probably than the last four, but we really don't know much more about most of them. Uh, This is still a pretty unknown group, but we do know a few things about these guys. Let's start with Philip. Uh, He was the fifth in every list, uh, probably the leader of this middle group, and they're always listed in the same order. Uh, This is not Philip the deacon or the servant in Acts 6. Uh, This is not the Philip who taught Philip and the eunuch story. Uh, This is Philip the apostle. Don't get them confused. The, uh, this one that served as a early servant or deacon and the one that taught the eunuchs, another Philip. Uh, Philip's a Greek name. means lover of horses, if any of you horse lovers uh, didn't know that. Uh, he's prob- he, know- he had to have a Jewish name because he was Jewish, but we don't know it. Nobody in the Bible ever tells us what his Jewish name was. He's just always called Philip. Uh, His family was probably Hellenistic Uh, in this time, if you remember. uh, The Jews had taken on, or the country had taken on, a lot of Greek culture. Uh, The Hellenistic culture and the the language and uh, practices and a lot of that. In fact, that was the main thing the Pharisees were against. The Pharisees were started to keep Hellenistic influence out uh, and make sure we stayed pure Jewish. So probably Philip's family was a Hellenistic family and named him uh, Philip. He would have had a Jewish name. We just don't know it. Uh, He was from Bethsaida, the same place Peter and Andrew lived. He was friends with Nathaniel, and they often are named together. They probably went out two by two together, if we can assume that. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't tell us anything about him. John's the only one that tells us anything about Philip. So let's look at a few stories in John. And these are the only stories in John about Philip. Uh, His call teaches us a few things in John 1, 43 to 45. uh, He was called the day after Peter and Andrew were. And it says that Jesus sought him out. Uh, This is the first one of the apostles that we're told particularly that Jesus sought 
Peter and Andrew seemed to be kind of the group that was hanging around Jesus all the time. Uh, They were kind of with him. And at some point he said, come on, follow me full time. Uh, But the way the passage is worded in John 1 there, uh, he seemed to seek Philip out somehow. Uh, We learn from that call that Philip knew the scriptures. Uh, He studied the Old Testament and knew a lot about him, uh, knew a lot about the scriptures because he had been seeking the Messiah. Uh, As soon as Jesus was introduced to him and Philip figured out who he was, first thing he did, ran to Nathaniel. What did he tell Nathaniel? We found him. We found him. This guy was looking for the Messiah. Uh, a lot of people in that day were. We talked about how uh, Judas maybe was and how Simon the Zealot surely was. and uh, A lot of them were expecting the Messiah any time. Uh, but this guy knew the Old Testament. And he ran and told his friend Nathaniel, we found him. We've got the guy. Uh, we'll learn a little bit more about that when we talk about Nathaniel. Uh, the feeding of the 5,000 tells us a little bit about Philip and his character, perhaps. Uh, and some of this is a little bit of assumption because I like to think about people's personalities and what personality type they have and all that. I think Philip was probably the, the administrator in the group, uh, the facts and figures guy. Went by the rules. Uh, he wasn't the, the money keeper. That was Judas. But a couple of stories here make me think that. Uh, and this one was interesting. When John 6, feeding of the 5,000, when the crowd gets there and it's obvious they need to be fed, Jesus asked Philip what we're going to do about it. Jesus turns to Philip out of all the 12 and says, where are we going to buy bread for these folks? And John goes on and tells us that Jesus was testing him. Jesus knew what he was thinking. And Jesus knew his faith was pretty weak right now. Uh, He had seen Jesus turn water to wine. He had seen a lot of things. But here we've got a crowd that needs food. And Jesus turns to Philip probably because he was the guy that took care of those kind of things. The administrator type but also because he was testing him. And the interesting thing is, Philip immediately answers, can't be done. Can't handle it. Okay. Now, my guess is he had been thinking about this all day. As the crowd grew, Philip's probably calculating, okay, we're never going to get out of here before dinner. You know, these guys are not going to get home for supper. So they're going to get hungry pretty soon. And what are we going to do when they get hungry? And I'm, I'm thinking, imagining this, but I'm thinking he probably started calculating it. You know, we got this much money. We got 200 denarii. That's how much is in Judas's bag. That's, that's all we got. And if we spent all of that, you know, how many barley loaves could we buy? Well, Maybe 20 for a denarii. And if we spent it all, we'd have 4,000 barley loaves. And if we broke them in half, we'd give everybody a half a barley loaf. We'd still be short. This can't be done. 
So that's what he told Jesus. Jesus asked him, he said, how are we going to go about this? And he responds in verse 7 there of John 6 with his calculations. Uh, whoa, Luke, I'm in Luke, that's why. Luke and John are different. We'll learn that as we go through this. John chapter 6. Verse 7, Philip answered him, eight months' wages, that's 200 denarii about, would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. I've already figured this out, Jesus. This isn't going to happen. Yeah. Well, then we make a big deal out of Andrew. We think Andrew's got a lot of faith. And Andrew shows up with one little boy. Now, the story doesn't say Andrew has a lot of faith. We kind of assume that compared to Philip. Uh, but maybe Andrew looked around and was just showing Jesus, look, this is all we got. You know, we got a kid with five loaves of barley and two fishes, and this isn't going to work. He might have been going along with Philip. Uh, in fact, he said, but how far will they go among so many? And so then Jesus went ahead and did the miracle and showed him how weak their faith was. But we learned a little bit about Philip in that, that uh, his faith wasn't very strong right then at least, and he was a facts and figures kind of guy. The visit of the Greeks reinforces that a little bit, I think. In John 12, there's an interesting story about some Greeks who wanted to see Jesus. Now, they were God-fearing Greeks. They were in Jerusalem for the Passover, and they came to Philip, probably because... Either they knew he was the administrator of the group and handled those kind of arrangements, or because his name was Philip, they knew he was probably a could speak Greek. Uh, but they went to him, and they said, we'd like to see Jesus. And it's interesting to me that Philip couldn't make that decision. And that kind of personality type, you know, the beaver types that he probably was, uh, aren't real good at making decisions. And so he couldn't do that. He said, oh, yeah, I better go talk to Andrew about this. And so he went and got, uh, went and told, uh, uh, told Andrew about it. And Andrew said, sure, let's go see Jesus. So they took them to see Jesus. Philip may have been kind of a by the book. Uh, we'd never had this happen before. We don't have a policy on what happens when Greeks want to talk to Jesus. Uh, we know when little children want to talk to Jesus, we're supposed to take them straight through. But I don't know what to do with Greeks, so uh, maybe. And once again, I'm, I'm guessing here a little bit, but hopefully it puts a little personality to Philip. The upper room's the last story we've got about him. Uh, he made one comment. Let's turn over to John 14. Kind of reinforces his personality, perhaps. Uh, John 14, he made one comment in verse 8. Uh, after Jesus had talked about the Father and all of that, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus was disappointed. Jesus said, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Philip hadn't figured out yet that Jesus was God. He knew he was the Messiah. 
He knew that much of it, but he hadn't quite got that point that this was God walking on earth. And we'll compare that to Nathaniel here in just a moment. Okay, so that's what we know about Philip. Uh, supposition, since he was from the same town as Peter and Andrew, they might have grown up in the same synagogue, uh, might have been in the same youth group together probably. Uh, Peter and Andrew were close to James and John, uh, so maybe all five of them were buddies. Uh, pretty good chance that they at least were business associates uh, in the things that they did before they started following Jesus. And secular legend, secular history and legend, uh, says that he went to Asia Minor, followed Paul kind of up through there, uh, and died eight years after James was martyred. So he was one of the earliest to be martyred. Uh, there are legends of multitudes of people being converted uh, by Philip's preaching. All right, Nathaniel, son of Tolmai. Uh, all four lists call him Bartholomew for some reason. I don't know why they do that unless that's just what they called him. Uh, but his name seems to be Nathaniel. That's all John ever calls him is Nathaniel. Uh, so probably properly he was Nathaniel Bartolmai. Uh, Nathaniel, son of Tolmai. Uh, Bartholomew means the son of Tolmai. Uh, once again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, don't say a thing about him. Acts doesn't say anything about Nathaniel. Uh, John's the only one who tells us anything, and he doesn't tell us much. He tells us about his call by Jesus, and he tells us about the fishing trip after the, the resurrection, but he doesn't even mention Philip in that. We're assuming it's Philip. Okay, his call, though, tells us some stuff. Uh, his call tells us how much he loved Scripture, how much he knew Scripture. Uh, it tells us he was a little bit prejudiced, had some earthly prejudices, and he had a really strong faith. Uh, he was different than Philip in that, I think. Uh, we talked about when Philip went to Nathaniel as soon as Jesus as he met Jesus, and he said, "We found the Messiah." Uh, Philip went on and said, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. So these guys knew the Old Testament scriptures. We've been reading what Moses said. We've been reading what the prophets said. We know about the Messiah, and Philip says we found him. Uh, so he was a scripture lover. But then, it's interesting, Philip said, I imagine maybe Nathaniel said, Well, who is it? And he said, it's a guy named Jesus. He said, he's from Nazareth. And he's the Messiah. And what was Nathaniel's first response? It, and nothing good can come out of Nazareth. Okay. Now, partly that shows how much he knew Scripture, because Scripture said the Messiah was from Bethlehem. So he put that two and two together. But then also, he had the common, very common prejudice of that day. Uh, Nazareth was looked down upon. Uh, I read one quote from uh, some historian that said Judeans, all of Judea, uh, all of them looked down on all Galileans, and all Galileans looked down on the Nazarenes. Uh, it was a low-class place for some reason, and so that's how Nathaniel responded. Jesus from Nazareth? No, nothing good can come out of there. Uh, so he was a little bit prejudiced, 
but when Jesus went on and talked to him, look at how Nathaniel responded so quickly. Uh, Jesus revealed that he had divine knowledge. He had seen Nathaniel under the fig tree before. And, uh, he said he had no guile in him, that he wasn't uh, one who would try to lie to you or trick you or be deceptive. He just didn't have any guile. He, he just told it like it was. Little children have no guile, you know, most of them. They'll come up and tell you if you've got an ugly shirt on or something. You know, it doesn't, doesn't bother them. Uh, well, that's the way Nathaniel was. He had no guile in him. Uh, but he asked Jesus how he knew that, and he said, I've seen you before. I saw you under the fig tree, and people guess that's probably where he studied the scriptures and prayed, was under some fig tree somewhere. Um, and once he knew this guy that Philip had already told him was the Messiah had that kind of divine knowledge and all that, he immediately responded, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And that's Old Testament language. He put it all together right then. Now bear in mind, two years later, Philip still didn't have it all together. Yeah, but Nathaniel did. He figured out that this is God. This is the King of Israel. This is the one that the Old Testament talked about. Uh, so he had a stronger faith in many ways, more belief than, than Philip did. Secular history, uh, he supposedly went east over to Persia and India over in that area. Uh, one tradition says he was put in a sack and thrown in the sea. Uh, another one says that he was crucified. Uh, yeah, I mean one little thing in here. I, when I saw that Nazarene, it reminded me and thought about it. I was just reading an article the other day. Uh, this has nothing to do with the apostles, by the way. Uh, reading an article about how there are basically no Christians left in Iraq. Uh, the oppression, the, the slaughter, the persecution by ISIL or ISIS or whatever we call them, uh, has pretty well wiped Christians out in that whole country. Uh, the apostles went that direction, a lot of them. Uh, like you see here, Nathaniel went to India. And there are were Christian populations throughout the Middle East, uh, all through there. Still in Egypt a little bit. It's about the only place there are many left. But they're basically gone in Iraq. And what I found interesting was the way that uh, ISIS gets rid of them is they go through the communities, and there used to be a huge community of Christians in Mosul, but they went through there, and when they find Christians, they mark their house with the Arabic symbol for Nazarene. This is a Nazarene. This is a Christ follower. They follow the Nazarene. And when they mark the house, then they set out to persecute them or drive them off or kill them or behead them or whatever until there's none left. So uh, when I read about Nathaniel being prejudiced against Nazareth, I thought uh, that's still going today. Uh, the, the Arabic persecution is coming because they're Nazarenes, they're Christ followers. All right, Thomas, the twin. Uh, he's called Didymus was his uh, nickname, so we know he had a twin probably. Uh, don't know if it was a boy or a girl and... Don't know where the twin went. We never read anything else about it. 
we call him Doubting Thomas most of the time. I think that's unfair, but that's what we call him. Uh, just like the other two, Matthew, Mark, Luke, don't tell us anything. Everything we learn comes from John. And I put a few little stories, little vignettes uh, that John tells about Thomas. And I think we can learn how much he loved the Lord and that he was pretty negative, pretty pessimistic about things in the few little pictures we get of him. I don't think he was a doubter particularly. I think he was just kind of pessimistic and negative. Uh, One great story, I love this story, John chapter 11. Uh, It's after Jesus almost got stoned and escaped, and they've gone back up to Galilee, and then they hear that Lazarus is dying, and so Jesus says, we've got to go back. And if you remember the story, or if you go home and read it, uh, all the other uh, apostles said, you're crazy. We can't go back there. We just barely got out with our lives. Uh, you want to go back right now? There's no worse time. They said, well, they'll kill us. And so they had that discussion. And Jesus said, well, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And the, the, the apostles all thought this was just a silly thing to do. And Thomas finally said in verse 16, well, let us also go that we may die with him. And he analyzed somebody that would say that. He didn't see how this was going to work out. You know, this is going to be a disaster. We go back down there, they are going to kill us. But if Jesus is going, we might as well go too. You know, we can't do without him. He's, he's all we got. He's the one. And so we see how much he loved Jesus, how much he believed in him and all that. But he also had this negative, pessimistic attitude about him, uh, I sometimes think that showed great faith, but I'm not sure it really did. He didn't think they were going to live. He said, let's go be killed. So he was ready if Jesus was ready to do that. Then the other one's in the upper room, uh, John 14, and Jesus had just told them, I'm going to leave you, uh, but they knew where he was going and they knew the way. Well, he had taught him about that. We'll see that later this year. He had taught him about that. But Thomas spoke up and said, no, we don't know where you're going. And we don't know the way either. You know, what do you mean we know how to follow you? He had this negative concept. And, no, we're not going to be able to make it without you. We don't know where you're going or how to get there. Um. The other one is the most famous one after the resurrection in John 20. Uh, The apostles first saw Jesus. They were in a room, the the ten of them, without Thomas. They were in the room and Jesus appeared. He came through the locked doors and all of that. And the record just says Thomas was not with them. Don't know where he was. He just wasn't there. Okay, if we're guessing, if we're surmising... uh, as much as he loved Jesus, uh, maybe he was just so brokenhearted he didn't want to even be around the apostles. He thought it was all over. They all thought it was all over. They'd all left and gone into hiding except John and uh, Peter. Uh, so they thought the, the game was up 
And maybe he was so depressed about it, he just didn't want to even be around the ten of them. But he wasn't there. And then, when they did run into him, the ten, and they told him, we've seen Jesus. He didn't believe them. He said, no, you hadn't. So these are ten guys he's lived with for two years. You know, ten guys he knows very intimately. And they said, yeah, we really have seen him. He said, no, you hadn't. I ain't going to believe it. Not possible. It's the kind of attitude he had. Well, eight days later, can you imagine what that eight days was like uh, living with this dichotomy here of is he alive or isn't he? But anyhow, eight days later, finally he was in the room with them and Jesus appears. And I think the most interesting part of the story is how gently Jesus treats him. Uh, He understood Thomas and his disbelief or unbelief. He said, come here, Thomas. He said, look, it is really me. And he let him touch his hands and his side. Uh, Thomas recognized immediately who he was as my Lord and my God. Secular history, he supposedly also went over toward uh, India. Uh, There's a burial place marked for him over in India. And there are a lot of churches, especially down in southern India, uh, that everybody knows have been around for 2,000 years almost. Uh, They started very, very early in Christianity, and a lot of them have a legend that Thomas was the one who started them, uh, that he came through India uh, preaching and converted people there. Uh, Death, the most common tradition is that he was killed with a spear. All right, Matthew, our last friend tonight, also named Levi, was his Hebrew name. Uh, He wrote... The book of Matthew and one of the four Gospels. Uh, probably a very humble man, if we can conclude that, since he wrote a book, uh, uh, The Life of Jesus, and he only mentioned himself two times. And neither one of those was very important. He, he puts himself in the list. He said, These are the twelve apostles. And so he lists his own name, and then he tells about his call, about when Jesus called him from the tax booth. But he gives a very abbreviated report. He just gives the bare facts. And he doesn't identify uh, who threw the party that we're going to study about here in just a second. So he doesn't trumpet his own horn in any way in the book of Matthew. Uh, He probably knew the scriptures uh, better than the rest of them, from as evidenced in his gospel anyway, we can guess. He quotes the Old Testament 99 times. And if you say, well, the Holy Spirit just told him that, uh, no, they had their own way of writing. And uh, I think he knew the scriptures. And even if the Holy Spirit did tell him, then we've got to figure out why did 99 times is more than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, I mean, Mark, Luke, and John all together. Mark, Luke, and John didn't quote the Old Testament much. Matthew did. Uh, part of it is he's interested in the Jews. He was writing to the Jews. Uh, It was the slant of his gospel. But he quotes the Old Testament a whole lot. And he quotes the law. He quotes the prophets. He quotes the poetry. uh, Quotes all of it. So he was very familiar with the Old Testament. Uh, Don't know much about him except his call. But before we talk about it, uh, let's spend just a little time learning about tax collectors because 
We usually think Judas is the, the worst guy in the bunch. Uh, and after what he did to Jesus, he was. But of the twelve, Matthew's probably the worst guy in the bunch uh, from what he did. Uh, tax collectors were the most despised people in Israel. Everybody hated tax collectors. Hadn't been a whole lot changed in 2,000 years, have there? Uh, but everybody hated tax collectors, uh, especially if they happened to be a Jewish fellow that worked for the Romans. And that's what Matthew was. Uh, tax collectors paid a, uh, or bought a permit, uh, bought the franchise to collect taxes. And Caesar would sell them a franchise, and then Rome would tell them uh, what the tax rates were on things. Then it was up to the tax collector to get that out of the people. And he had a lot of leeway, especially one kind of tax collector, which we'll look at in just a minute. Uh, He could add on just about any kind of surcharge that he wanted. So it was a very lucrative position. He could extort as much as he wanted because he had Roman soldiers standing over there to help him collect. Uh, That's the way they worked. Uh, They were tax collectors or publicans. Uh, Weren't allowed in the temple. They weren't allowed in a synagogue. Remember when Jesus told the story about the the publican and the sinner? He said that they both went up to pray. And he said the publican stood afar off. He had to stand afar off because he couldn't go in the temple. Uh, he couldn't go any closer than that. He couldn't go into the court of the Gentiles. He had to stay outside that. Uh, that's how people thought about tax collectors. So uh, that's who Matthew was. He was one of them. And in researching a little bit, I found this interesting. Uh, there were two kinds of tax collectors. Uh, the Gabbai, G-A-B-B-A-I, uh, collected general taxes, property tax and income tax and poll tax and all of that. And there wasn't much graft in that. wasn't as much graft. They could still set it. But basically that was set as a percentage and wasn't much you could do about that. Uh, the Mokis were the ones who collected duties on imports, <coughs> excuse me, imports, exports, uh, things being traded, Anything moved along the road, they set tolls on the road, they set bridge tolls, <coughs> and they could do uh, pretty much anything they wanted on their setting of taxes, and they did. Uh, Rome told them how much they needed from that franchise, excuse me, and then the tax collectors could jack it up as high as they wanted. And like I said, they had Roman soldiers standing with them to <coughs> help them collect it. So there were two kinds of Mokis. The great Mokis were the uh, supervisors, and they hired other people to collect taxes for them, and the little ones were the ones that actually collected the taxes. Zacchaeus is called a chief tax collector, so he was probably a great Moki. And Matthew worked in a booth, a tax booth, so he was probably a little one that collected taxes in a certain area. Everybody coming past that road or whatever, he'd collect taxes from them and then pass it on up to a guy like Zacchaeus. Uh, so that's how the tax collecting worked. Now, Matthew was one of those guys. 
hated by everybody. And his call is recorded in Luke 5. Uh, Matthew recorded it also, but he didn't tell us much about it. Uh, Luke says, he stresses that Matthew left everything. Jesus called him. Matthew got up and uh, left the tax booth and followed Jesus. Left a very lucrative career. Uh, when we were singing that one song about Jesus calls us, the one verse struck me as being pretty much about Matthew. I wrote it down. Jesus calls us from the worship of the vain world's golden store, from each idol that would keep us saying, Christian, love me more. Uh, that's what the call was to Matthew. Leave the vain world's golden store. And Luke says, Matthew left everything. And then Luke explains the party better than Matthew does. Matthew just says, then there was a party that Jesus went to. Well, it was Matthew's party. Uh, he threw the party in his house, and he invited all his friends to come meet Jesus. Okay. And this freaked out the Pharisees. They just went nuts. Uh, that Jesus was hanging around with this crowd who was all tax collectors and probably prostitutes and outcasts of every kind uh, that Matthew had invited. And when you stop and think about it, why would Matthew invite those kind of people to a party? Because that's the only friends he had. He was a tax collector. There weren't any good people going to hang around with Matthew. But Matthew was excited to introduce Jesus to them, so he invited all his friends. Fine with Jesus. He was happy to go. Pharisees were incensed, but Matthew had the party anyway. All right, secular history. Uh, he mainly kept ministering to the Jews. He stayed in Israel supposedly for quite a while and did go abroad, but he still kept working with the Jewish people. Uh, makes sense since his gospel was written to them. And uh, the most familiar tradition is that he was burned at the stake is how he died. All right, that's the middle four, and next week we're going to somehow <laughs> cover Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Actually, it won't be as hard as uh, possible because these eight we've looked at already, they aren't mentioned much anywhere else. Uh, we've kind of learned all we can about them. Uh, the first four, Peter, Andrew, and James, and John, are in the Gospels everywhere. So every story we look at, every topic that Jesus teaches uh, every teaching situation, Peter, Andrew, James, and John are going to be in the middle of it probably. So we'll we'll learn about them more later in the year. But we'll get the the highlights next week. All right. Thank you for your attention. Uh, we're, lesson is yours. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation in any way, we'd be happy to help you tonight. I'll be at the front to receive you. Let's stand and sing and come if you need to.